This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Let's talk about mandatory masks in our province. My guest is Dr. James Heilman. He is an emergency room doctor in Cranbrook. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Dr. Heilman, am I pronouncing your name right? Uh, that sounds great. Thank you for having me. Okay, Dr. Heilman, thank you very much for coming on. Can you make the case for me for mandatory ma- face masks in BC? Sure. So, you know, what we're pushing for is we're pushing for um, mask requirements in indoor spaces outside the home when folks are in crowds and when people are using uh, public transit. Um, you know, there are plenty of uh, there's a lot of evidence to show benefit from this. Uh, the benefits of masks include decreased infections, um, you know, decreased uh, chance of disruption to our health system, and a decrease uh, in the risk of all of us needing to return back to uh, lockdown. Uh, it, just, it does not just make good healthcare sense, but it makes good economic sense. Okay, of course, Dr. Bonnie Henry, the province's chief uh, chief public health officer, has kind of resisted uh, any kind of mandatory mask order in our province. Uh, do you disagree with her? Uh, I do, yes. You know, we are out of step with uh, not only most of the world, 85% of the population of the globe live in a location that requires masks in public spaces, but we're also out of sync with much of Canada. You know, initially, the evidence for masks wasn't, um, you know, that great back in January, February. But, you know, over the last three, four months, the evidence is becoming stronger and stronger that masks uh, play a critical role in in preventing the spread of uh, COVID-19 and preventing all the disruption that this disease can cause. Okay, Dr. Hallman, let me play a clip here for you of Dr. Bonnie Henry. Here she is speaking yesterday, and I thought this was very interesting. TransLink right now. I think there are a lot of the signals out there that they may be leaning toward a mandatory mask policy on transit in Metro Vancouver. And Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked to comment about that yesterday. Here's what she said. There have been ongoing discussions. I know TransLink is looking at their programs and how they can uh, make sure that their safety plans are, are enhanced and the best that they can be. So, um, yes, I, I'm very um, confident that they are looking at this in some detail. I don't know that the absolute decision has been made yet, but um, um, I certainly would encourage it. I think that's an an important um, business uh, thing to do, both at TransLink and BC Transit. It sounds like she's handing handing it off to TransLink, but just kind of reading between the lines of what she said there, it sounded like she was almost endorsing masks on transit. Do you think she should just come right out and say, look, you should wear wear a mask if you get on a bus or SkyTrain? You know, she's a provincial health officer, she can come out and, you know, make that requirement for yeah. public transit in BC. And my opinion is she definitely should. You know, currently in BC, we do not even require masks in all hospitals across this province. You know, we are definitely behind much of the world when it comes to preventative measures for COVID-19. And, you know, we're uh, at this point in time, we're unfortunately relying too much on good luck and not enough on, um, you know, strong leadership and and strong steps to prevent this disease. How how do we compare to, you mentioned like other jurisdictions, what about other provinces? Have other provinces brought in mandatory masks rules? 
Uh, yep, you know, so so we have Quebec. Uh, the entire province has mandatory mask um, um, bylaws. We have Nova Scotia, the same, uh, and and about 95, 98% of Ontario have have mask mandates. Uh, just you know, our neighbor to uh, the east, Edmonton, Calgary, Banff, all those jurisdictions have recently, over the last few days, rolled out mask requirements. Okay. Do you think it should be mandatory just like everywhere? Like where would the where would a mask be required to be worn just when you're in proximity to other people in public? So, you know, in indoor spaces outside the home, when you're in large crowds and when you're on public transit, you know, those those would be the three main um, uh, locations where masks should be mandatory. What do you think the impact of that would be? I mean, we saw yesterday uh, a large number of new cases in BC. Of course, that was over uh, four days with the long weekend. But uh, we see a, a little bit of a surge or a return of the virus in British Columbia. If we adopted a mandatory mask rule, do you think it would slow the transmission rate? Um, yes, definitely. You know, mandatory masks also are just in addition to the, all the other recommended measures. You know, people still need to socially distance as much as possible. Um, you know, people still need to wash their hands. Uh there is no one simple solution to solve this pandemic. It takes multiple measures used by, you know, large portions of our population to prevent this disease from getting out of control. Dr. Hellman, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the campaign to stop the construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline live now to the treetops in New West. Dr. Tim Takaro. He is occupying a tree near the Brunette River in New Westminster to protest construction of the pipeline. Dr. Takaro, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can, Mike. Okay, what's it like? Th- How long have you been up in that tree? Uh, this is day three. Okay, wh- how, what have you got up there? Have you got like a, a, a hammock? What, what, kind of a, what kind of infrastructure you got up there? It's called a portal ledge. Uh, it's the kind of ledge you might see on the face of El Capitan where there's um, there are no ledges. Climbers use them when they need a place to rest. Right, okay, yeah, I've seen those. Um, have you been up there the whole time, or do you, do you come down and take a break, or have you been up there for the whole three days? I've been up here the whole time. Okay, why are you up there? Well, Mike, um, as you may have heard from the Canadian Parliament, we have a climate emergency. And um, unlike the COVID-19 emergency, uh, we're not uh, responding appropriately to this emergency. So I'm up here to bring attention to the fact that we should not be building new fossil fuel infrastructure at a time when we have to make an energy transformation to sustainable future for our children. Okay, the, the tree that you're occupying is located along the Brunette River in New Westminster. I understand you're the, you're the Trans-Canada Highway where it crosses North Road in, in New That's West. Right. Why did you select that particular location for your, demonstrate your protest? Well, uh, this is the first construction outside the fence uh, in my area. Uh, so it's really the first opportunity. And um, fortunately, uh, thousands of other British Columbians are joining me online and uh, at our protest at Hume Park today uh, to block this construction. 
the yeah, so- uh, these trees these trees have to come down according to uh, according to Trans Mountain. They have to cut the trees in order to save the salmon. Um, so you know that di- sort of diabolical, um, which is emblematic of the entire project. In twenty twenty, okay, we should not be building new pipelines. Okay, when you say they have to cut the trees down to save the salmon, what do you mean? Well, they say that there's this uh, window between August 1st and September 15th, a window when they do the least damage to the salmon-bearing stream here. And, yeah, that's so they're going to cut the trees during that period because all the other times are even worse. So that's what I mean. Cut the trees, uh, quote unquote, save the salmon. Uh, if you cut between August first and I September fifteenth, I see. Okay, how long are you planning to stay? So that the tree that you're in right now is is marked for for to be torn down, to be cut down. Is that correct? To make way for the pipeline? Yeah, I'm actually suspended between two trees. Okay. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, they're slated to be cut. Okay, how how long are you determined to stay up there? Well, you know, September 15th right now sounds like a long time. Uh, and it is, but fortunately I have many people lining up uh, wanting to occupy my camp. Um, so... Uh, okay. uh, we're going we're to stop the pipeline... And this is just the beginning of the fight. Okay, I'm talking to Dr. Tim Takaro. He is a, a Metro Vancouver doctor who is occupying uh, the tree canopy uh, near the Brunette River in New West in, in the path of the pipeline construction. Um, are you on, is this like private property or is that crown land? What What is the status there where you are? Well, it's a, it's contested land like most of British Columbia, Um I believe this is the traditional territory of the Coquitlam First Nations, um, and it overlaps with uh, Tsleil-Waututh uh, and other territories. Okay. Uh, do you, Do you have their permission to to stage your protest on their land? Yes. Yes. You may have heard from uh, Will George yesterday. Okay. He was here, um, and uh, he's representing the. They would too. Um, so yes, I do have um, the blessings of the owners of the territory. Okay. Do you have you been uh, told to get out of the tree? Like, has Trans Mountain come along and said, "Hey, we're getting we're going to cut this trees these trees down, so you better get down." Have you been threatened with a court injunction or anything like that? Or the police been by to see you? No, uh, the police uh, did. The police did walk by the railroad tracks, um, which are, uh, I can see them from here. They walked by yesterday, they didn't say anything. There were some guys on the ground sort of snooping around, and they wouldn't identify themselves. So we think that's probably the company. Mm. Um, but no, nobody said, nobody said anything to me. Uh, Trans Mountain won't respond to the CBC inquiries. So I don't know uh, I don't know what their plans are, but there's no injunction zone marked here, and the city advised me that um, with no injunction zone marked, 
uh, what I may what I'm doing may not be illegal. Hmm. Okay, is you? I know you mentioned that you believe the land that you're on is um, is traditional territory of the First Nation, but is it is it a municipal park? Is, is that what it is? Well, technically, it's, it depends on what uh, map you look at. So many maps show it as uh, the Burnaby Conservation Area. Okay. Uh, some maps show it as uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad. Um, so yeah, it's contested. Okay, what what do you say to people, uh, Tim, who may be listening to this, saying like, "Oh man, you know, come on, this guy's a hypocrite because you know we need oil, we use oil every day in our daily lives." He, he's talking right now on a cell phone that's made out of fossil fuels, largely. How do you respond to that? Well, I think you know, COVID nineteen has shown us that as a society, we're capable of amazing transformational change and we've been talking for decades about how we need transformational change in our energy system and COVID-19 has shown us the way how to get there I mean there's billions and billions of dollars leaving the federal coffers unfortunately uh, at least 12.5 is Slated to build this new pipeline. Uh, okay, so we, you've been up- we could reprioritize. Yeah. And for those people who say I'm a hypocrite, um, you know, they have their perspective. But I'm working with the tools that I have right now to make change. And uh, everybody knows we need a new energy system. Okay, you've been up there three days. How are you getting? Is like someone passing food up to you, or? Well, I came surviving? up with a lot of supplies, but I also have um, people on the ground supporting me. My lovely wife, Aggie, and my son, Ben, uh, brought me dinner last night and a, and a beer. Um, <laughs> Steel and Oak, by the way, great New West brewery. Uh, so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm well supported, and uh, it's actually quite nice up here. Are you willing, are you willing to get arrested there? Oh yeah, they they if um, if I'm going to come down, they're going to have to bring me down, or someone will come up and replace me. But um, no, uh, the reason I'm in this spot is because it will be very challenging for them to get me. Okay, Tim, I'm following your protest closely. Thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk. Uh, keep talking a little politics here and talk about the federal conservative leadership race uh, heading in to the home stretch here. Peter McKay, Aaron O'Toole, Derek Sloan, Leslin Lewis are the candidates for the federal conservative leadership. Can any of these potential leaders turn this party around? Justin Trudeau certainly going through some tough times, but the liberals continue to be on top of the polls. I don't know. I give the conservatives a shot here if a new leader can turn things around for the fortunes of this party, especially with Justin Trudeau in trouble. Let's check in with Michael Tobe now from a columnist with Troy Media. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Michael, thank you for coming on. Well, my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having okay, me. Okay. W- w- how do you handicap this race here as we go into the home stretch in this, uh, in this conservative party leadership contest? Ha. Well, let's see. I mean, I, a lot of it is going to be uh, contingent upon who the Tories ultimately pick. So, for example, 
one would assume that it'll either be Aaron O'Toole or Peter McKay, Peter McKay being the front runner as of right now. Yeah. But when you put everything into the pot, no matter who the Tories pick, I tend to agree with you that they would have a bit of an advantage if there was an early election call, simply because the We Charity has just hammered Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's numbers so badly based on the way that there's been, and you know, you've obviously gone through it for many days and many weeks like everyone else has, and I've discussed it a lot too with other people, just the, the amount of things that have tied his party, his government, and his family together for a variety of ways, either politically or financially, based on appearances and travel fees, when you put it all together and all the concerns that Canadians are starting to have, it looks like this one controversy, which will be the third ethics violation in five years that this prime minister has faced, this looks like the one that might stick the longest. And if that's the case, I think the handicap favors the Tories right now. Okay, I predict that Peter McKay will win this. You're not, not exactly going out too far on a, on a limb to predict that as he's uh, in ahead in the polls. But I, I think he had a sort of stumbled out of the gate and, and his campaign didn't do great at the start, but I think he turned things around. Uh, let's have a short listen here to uh, Peter McKay. Here he is. I'm running to become the Prime Minister of Canada. And I'm running to keep our Conservative family united, as I have before build on our strengths in every region of the country, and then win a national majority conservative government. Okay, that's Peter McKay from one of his campaign ads. Um, do you think, Michael, that I think he'd be an improvement over Sheer for sure. Can he beat Trudeau, though? Well, I mean, it depends how you look at it. I mean, Peter McKay is not my type of conservative, Mike, and I've written about this and I've said about this, not just recently, but for years. You know, Peter, although he has some fiscal conservative sensibilities when it comes to the economy, uh, he has also, unfortunately, a lot of red Tory or left-leaning conservative values when it comes to social issues. The mix is not what I would necessarily want out of my federal leader. But ultimately, if that's who the federal Tories choose, yes, I agree with you that I think that he'll be ready and prepared to hit the ground running and hopefully will do better than Andrew Scheer, who, although I think he got a bit of a bum rap the way he handled things, there's no question that during last year's federal election, he tripped and stumbled on a variety of things, including his career, when he really had Justin Trudeau in a position that I think most opposition parties would have loved to have. After three instances of blackface, the two planes yeah. controversy, and so many other things that were latched on to Justin Trudeau over a period of four years, he was right for the picking. And unfortunately, Andrew Scheer couldn't pick the fruit off the tree, so to speak. But I think Peter McKay would certainly have a strong chance of it, and as, as much as Aaron O'Toole, who I endorsed a few weeks ago, would also yeah. have a strong chance of becoming Prime oh, Minister, too. Okay, Peter McKay, I take your point that I guess some people might regard him as a, a red Tory or whatever, but doesn't the party have to sort of move in that direction to sort of capture the center of the political spectrum if they hope to win and beat Trudeau? Like, if they went with, like, a... a a, a social conservative far right winger i don't they would just box themselves in wouldn't they well look i don't like labels like far right winger and yes and social conservatism is certainly a part of the political party itself i mean that's more directly associated with Derek sloan i guess leslie yeah. lewis to a light lighter extent although people don't really look at her that way um but it depends again it depends how you sell your message i've been doing this long enough Mike, I've been involved in politics and media and various things for about 25 years, and it really depends on how the candidate sells himself or herself to the general populace. If you emphasize certain points that people want to hear, 
which is the day-to-day things about the nature of government, taxation, the economy, foreign policy, or, or a litany of different things. You can sell yourself as being a small-c conservative on a lot of issues, but a person who listens to a wide swath of opinions and ideas from coast to coast to coast. So again, it's all based on how the politician per se handles said issues or handles said campaign to ensure that all policies and all ideas, if not necessarily met, are covered. So for Peter McKay, I know a lot of people are saying, well, someone like that, uh, more of a centrist type of a conservative or more of a red Tory on social issues is necessary. I don't agree. No. Again, it's how the person sells the particular message. But if the party goes with Peter McKay as their leader, they will certainly get that mix and match sequence that a lot of political analysts okay. seem to think the Tories should be doing right now. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Aaron O'Toole, who's the other sort of perceived sure. front runner here running against McKay. And I, I've interviewed all three of these uh, these front runners for the party, and I had uh, I like I like O'Toole. Uh, have a listen to him here. Here's Aaron O'Toole. Said the same thing. This online cancel culture driven by the left is impacting free speech, impacting the principles that basically underscore our democracy. Okay, I've had him on the show here before, Michael. I, I liked him. I thought he was a smart guy. He certainly got experience as an MP and a former cabinet minister. Why are you yeah. backing him? I'm backing him overall because he sort of reminds me of a, a, a bit of a style of Stephen Harper, where you're using yeah. incremental conservatism as your model, which means that you're mixing and matching fiscal conservative ideas and social conservative ideas, but presenting them on a, a more limited approach. In other words, you're not taking a big knife and slashing social programs. You're not hammering through various things. You're not saying that privatization is the only thing that operates in Canada and is the only thing we should treasure, and we should basically just rip apart the public sector, the bureaucracy, and all that. As much as people were very critical of Stephen Harper when he was prime minister, my old friend and boss had a technique where he balanced out ideas, which meant that, yes, he was right of center for sure, but there wasn't this hard edge that a lot of his political opponents believed or imagined what actually existed. If anything, Stephen Harper basically modeled his government as a center-right type of government. Aaron O'Toole's platform, from what I can tell, Mike, and perhaps you saw this also in your interview, seems to be more of that mold, something that I'd say that more conservative supporters or conservative grassroots members or even conservative MPs, former cabinet ministers, etc., would be more interested in and I think would accept more. And the general populace would also definitely accept it, simply because... Stephen Harper had three governments, three cracks of governments, two minorities and one majority. He proved that you can win under an incremental conservative model. I'm I'm glad that Aaron O'Toole is trying to do that, and I think that's ultimately a, a good strategy, and that's why I strongly support him. I hope in the end that Peter McKay, who has not exhibited that at all in his platform, I hope he does move that to that to some degree because that is the key to success. Okay, Aaron O'Toole, I think, is a good candidate for the leadership of this party. I'm not sure he can overcome the kind of momentum that McKay appears to have here. But let's talk briefly, Michael, about, I think, kind of the surprise candidate in this this race, and that's uh, Leslyn Lewis, the Toronto sure. lawyer, the only woman in the race. Um daughter of uh, Jamaican immigrants to Canada, really intriguing uh, candidate. She was a guest on this show here a few weeks ago. I I was really impressed with her. Have a listen to her, Leslyn Lewis. Before casting your ballot, just take a minute and ask yourself, what kind of Canada do you want to live in? Think about a Canada where strong families are the cornerstone of society 
and loving parents are free to raise their children without fear of government interference. Okay, do you do you put her in a category of a social conservative? Well, maybe that people don't perceive her that way, but she is, isn't she? Uh, she is, and she isn't. She has. She is actually probably the most fiscally and socially conservative candidate, the one who has balanced it the best of all the four candidates who are running. I've actually been very impressed with her overall. I yeah. think she's handled herself exceedingly well, and she's really proven herself to be a potential star of this political party. The yeah. reason I didn't endorse her a few weeks ago in my Troy Media syndicated column or even my Looney Politics column is simply because I don't think she has enough political experience, that being she has none. She's run federally one time, and that was basically she had to run when the candidate who was actually in place in a Scarborough area riding was actually kicked out due to problems and improprieties that were happening in the riding and during that whole nomination process. She did okay, but she obviously wasn't the planned candidate. Other than that, I know Leslie Lewis serves as a vice president for one riding association and has been involved in politics for a number of years, but you need to get your feet wet like a Peter yeah. McKay, who has a lot of experience, and Aaron O'Toole, who obviously has a good amount of experience. Leslie okay. Lewis doesn't have any. However, uh, yeah. if she runs the next time out, Mike, and she wins a seat and she proves herself for one to two terms, she could be a real threat to become a leader at, at some time in the future. Wow. I think she could emerge as a very strong MP, and she's uh, run yeah. a very intriguing campaign for sure. It's interesting that there was a, a debate scheduled uh, the other day that was canceled because Leslie Lewis disclosed that she had an ear infection, and her yeah. doctor recommended that she skip this debate, and she said she had not... She's not tested positive for COVID-19, but she had this uh, this other medical issue. So she pulled out of this debate. And uh, Peter McKay, interestingly enough, also decided to step out of the debate because he thought it would be unfair for the debate to go forward without her participating. What did you think of that move by McKay? Because my read on that was he's looking to pick up her supporters there on a second <laughs> second ballot. And I, I thought maybe stepping aside is maybe trying to appeal to her supporters. Your thoughts? Well, look, all moves are strategic. You're absolutely yeah. right. I'm sure that was certainly part, you know, in his mind. I don't doubt that because if it comes down to an additional ballot or two, he's going to need support from whoever finishes in third place, be it O'Toole or Lewis, uh, to sort of, you know, get over the top and get the 50% yeah. plus one that he needs. Um, but it was also the right thing to do. Um, I think what he's trying to show is that even if he doesn't necessarily agree with Leslie Lewis in every single part of her campaign and hasn't agreed with every single policy she's put forward, he believes that she has value, she has worth, and the right thing to do is to step aside. Do I think it was wrong to go ahead without her? No, because I think that, you know, with the limited amount of time, you well, need as yeah. many speaking possibilities and, and uh, venues as possible. So right. I thought that part was okay. But strategically, okay. was it a good move for McKay? Yeah, for sure. Okay, the other candidate uh, there, Derek Sloan, is, I think, uh, what, you know, he's got no no ch no choice, no. Uh, no chance there. Um, you know, kind of very sort of small room to growth there. Why, why, is, why is Pierre Poliev? not running for the leadership of this party. This guy is a pit bull. He's just torn Trudeau to pieces here on this scandal. I think a lot of people have been looking at this guy saying, why isn't this guy running for leader? Well, look, I don't speak for Pierre. He has to deal with that himself, and he has to explain himself. But he already has. He's already directly said that because of family obligations, and he does have a very young family and a young daughter as well, he just didn't feel it was the right period of time. Much the same way other candidates like Ron Ambrose and others decided not to run, yeah. I don't think we should necessarily isolate Pierre Polyever and say, why you? He just decided that this was not the right time for him. 
Pierre is young enough. He's been around politics long enough. And there will be other opportunities for him to run if he wants. And certainly the way he handled himself at the House of Commons Finance Committee during both the testimonies of the, the Kyle Berger brothers and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and his chief of staff, Katie Telford, I think he actually thundered, you know, across the, all four participants oh. who sat there and did yeah. the testimony. Helen helps extremely well, asked some very, very tough questions. Not the only person on the committee who did, but he's, he's certainly stood out and presented himself as someone who, you know, don't forget about him. Would he have had a good chance to win uh, this year with the limited amount of candidates and other things that were going on? Yes, and I think he would have had a good chance even if there had been more candidates in there. But he's opted not to do so, so let's hope he does it in the future. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick programming note for you. At the bottom of the hour, we'll talk about that cyclist who is recovering from hospital with multiple injuries after he was hit by a truck with carrying a load of lumber on the Sea to Sky Highway on Sunday. His name is Todd Nickel. He is in Lionsgate Hospital in North Van recovering from this uh, incident. He's got eight broken ribs, a broken clavicle, a broken scapula, and a punctured lung. Have you seen the photos of this guy? Please follow me on Twitter and take a look at the photos of this vehicle that hit him with the lumber uh, sticking out in the back of a pickup truck. Unbelievable. This guy is still alive. And uh, this is the other interesting part of it. The fine against the driver so the driver of the truck was issued a ticket for driving without consideration that's 196 dollars and driving with an insecure load which is 288 dollars you add that up 484 bucks is that an adequate penalty in this incident? I'm going to cover that at the bottom of the hour and get set to call me up on that one. That is a really interesting story that a lot of people are talking about today. Okay, let's talk about the future of tech now, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. My guest is Andy Berrar. He is a freelance tech journalist at futurhythmic.com. I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi, Andy. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for coming on. And this COVID-19 pandemic has thrown us all for a loop, and particularly you and your business with the uh, events around uh, high tech and all the events that you cover, and especially the Consumer Electronics Show, right? Is that usually in, where is that usually held? Vegas? Yeah, so it's it's held in Vegas the first week of January every year. About 175,000 people from around the world come to Vegas for the Consumer Electronics Show, but they're going to do it all digital this year because I can't think of a worse place to be, Mike, than Las Vegas with 170,000 people from around <laughs> the world, all tightly packed in a convention center. Yeah. Um, I was there last year. I'm, I still wonder, did I get COVID in January? Because oh. it, everybody gets the flu. We call it the CES flu after Vegas. But it was uh, it was pretty hard on me this year. So I'm um, I, I want to. I almost want to get tested to see if I actually had COVID or not from, okay, from that in- show. Interesting. So you were sick when you got you got home from the last one there, huh? Interesting. Yeah, it happens every year. Like we call yeah. it the CES flu, but it was yeah. it was actually a little bit harder for me this year. Like I was bedridden for about a week. So oh, wow. uh, who knows? Who knows? 
Who knows for sure? That is a huge event in in the tech business for sure, and you've got to be an accredited journalist to uh, to attend that show, I believe, right? It's not like a it's not like just the public can go in and wander around and look at all these cool gadgets, or can they? And no, no, no. It's not open to the public. So you yeah. have to be like in the tech space, whether you're a buyer, an investor, or if you're part of the tech media. So it's amazing just how it's, I think it's the biggest trade show in the world. And they held out, Mike. They did not, as all these other events started to cancel, they're like, no, we're still going to have the show. And then only, I think it was last week, did they announce that they're going to go all digital because there's a lot of money at play. You know, I know yeah. Vegas as a city makes a lot of money because every hotel is not only booked, but the prices for the hotels are skyrocketed that one week. Yeah, no, it's an absolutely massive event, and now they're going to hold it virtual online, right? How do you, what kind of challenges does that present, especially when one of the attractions of that show is to check out all that cool new tech and gadgets up close and in person? I guess you got to do that online now. Yeah, and I don't think the experience is going to be the same. I just kind of had a preview of what that's going to feel like this morning because Samsung had their annual unpacked event, and that's oh. where they show the, their latest phones that are coming for the holiday and back-to-school season. Um, so they had that this morning, and I got to tell you, it, it was kind of weird, you know, like not being in New York, not having that chance to, to play with the devices, but to just watch a presentation, and all I could do was tweet about it. So I... Yeah. I, I I now know what CES is going to feel like come January because uh, this really is the new normal. Yeah, it really is. So tell me a little bit about that Samsung event this morning. What did they unveil there? So they unveiled five different devices, um, the new Note 20. So I don't know if people remember, but back in 2011, 2012, they came up with this new phone, and we didn't know what it was called. Was it a phone? Was it a tablet? It had a stylus built into it. So back then, we used to call it a phablet. You know, it was kind of a hybrid of the two. Well, their newest one, um, they just announced today, you know, their, their stylus, which is called the S Pen, has got even more smarter. So you're going to be able to, to use it as a pointer. It can understand your handwriting and digitize it. So there's a lot of power in that. They've also announced their new Galaxy Watch, which has a lot of health monitoring tools on it. So it can measure your blood pressure, your heart rate, very similar to what you see on the Apple Watch. And, of course, they also announced their foldable phone. It's called the, the foldable or Galaxy uh, Foldable Flip Phone 2, I think. I can't remember what the exact name was. Oh. But they spent um, a lot of attention on the hinge because the problem with, they found with the first version of this foldable phone was that the hinge uh, would get like dirt and dust in there. So it looks like they took some inspiration from Dyson to figure out how they could solve that problem so that when the phone, when it's folded in your pocket, is not going to collect all this debris, which would then mess up the hinge. So, you know, a lot of information. But again, like I'm saying, Mike, I never even got a chance to touch it, which is yeah. what I really look for when a new device comes out, because that's really how you know if it's going to be a, a game changer or not. Okay, Samsung, one of the global players in the industry. So what does that, what does that mean? The flip phone is making a comeback here? Yeah, everything's gone full circle. Um, okay. And the reason why is they're, they're getting the technology on the screen so that it, it can bend, but it's still durable. And so they had a huge presentation on what they're doing. Samsung leads the world on display technology. So, you know, it's almost like a Fruit Loop, I think, in the future. Our phones, we're just going to roll them up and put them in our phone. But right now, they just fold. So you get more surface space because it's almost like a book opening up a book. Um, but it's a premium price. So this is 
you know, you're going to have to pay a pretty penny to get this. And with COVID and people's job insecurities, you're going to wonder if people are going to start holding on to their phones a little bit longer instead of buying these next versions. Speaking to Andy Barrar from uh, Futurismic.com, he's a freelance tech journalist there. Andy, speaking of COVID-19, let's talk about the impact of the pandemic on, on the tech business and especially the expansion of a 5G network in Canada. What's the status of that right now and how is COVID-19 impacting that? Well, Mike, you know, there's so many conspiracy theories out there about COVID. And I don't know who did it, but somebody tried to tie in 5G causes COVID. And there's just so much misinformation that it's actually slowing the progression of 5G around the world. And this is like the one technology that got me most excited about uh, because it's going to revolutionize the way we do business online. It's 10 times faster than 4G. And so like there'll be companies in the future, Mike, that we can't even think about because we're not even used to speeds that fast. And 5G is actually the exact technology that we need right now, both in healthcare and in sports, to, to kind of push those industries to not only find a vaccine, but to get us watching sports again, especially when there's no crowds uh, in the stands. Okay, where do you stand on uh, Huawei of China being involved with 5G development in Canada? We see some other countries uh, saying they don't want Huawei in there because of a security risk. Yeah, and so this is like the the troubling thing is when you look at all the different companies, Huawei is the leader by far in 5G. But there's also this big worry that they might have some type of code where the Chinese government can have a backdoor into various countries around the world and their wireless networks. So Huawei knew that this was going to be an issue, and they actually opened up an R&D center in Canada to, to, to go by Canadian laws. But it looks like because of the geopolitical um, issues that we're seeing with China and the U.S. and the pressure that the U.S. puts on other countries, that we're not going to see Huawei step up and become the leader of 5G. So you got these other companies like Nokia, which is also in the 5G space, looking to, to take over that, that spot because... You know, there's so much new infrastructure, Mike, that has to be installed around the world to make 5G work. And we're talking billions and billions of dollars of infrastructure. And who knows if Huawei could ever win the trust back on people, but you're going to have other players to do it and make those those investments in countries around the world to give us 5G, which, like I said, is going to change society as we know it.